So we're, we're transitioning in our series in Revelation, just, and just to set the stage again and remind us, we have the last seven weeks we've been looking at the letters, and it almost feels like, if, as we're studying those letters, it almost feels like we're studying any other book of the Bible, right? It's almost easy to lose sight of the fact that those letters were Jesus' words as part of a vision, as part of a revelation to John so that the churches could hear it. But the rest of Revelation is the same thing. He commanded John to write the book of Revelation so that the churches would know. So all of this is Jesus' words to uh, his church. He wants his people to know what's going to be happening. So in this series, if you think where we've been, we've, we've been seeing God from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega, from all the way back in Genesis. If you think back where we started, we, we started really in Revelation, but that sent us back to Genesis. We've spent the, oh goodness, a, a, a year, better than a year, more than a year, walking through the scope of Scripture, watching and seeing God create, seeing God covenant, and then turning and watching him com- command his people, his covenant people to live in, a, in light of his righteousness, then commission his people as his missionaries, and then Now, as we're studying the book of Revelation, we're seeing him consummate or move towards consummating, completing the work that he started, moving toward the place where he is going to fulfill all the promises that have traced their way from the beginning of the scripture all the way to the end. Today, we're turning to Revelation chapter 4. It's going to be the second vision uh, of the book of Revelation that we're going to study. And, And it's going to be set in direct contrast, really, to what we see happening in those letters that we've studied. Again, in those letters, it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus, who has revealed himself as one with a face that shines like the sun, a double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, eyes like fire, feet, uh, with feet of brass, I, I'm forgetting all of the different little things. It's easy to forget that we're in the midst of this supernatural revelation where God is peeling back the veil so that John can see the glory of the heavens being revealed on the earth. And and one of the direct contrasts that we'll see today in light of of those letters is the fact that in that first vision where Jesus meets John, presumably on the beach of Patmos, this island that he's imprisoned on, Jesus comes and, and his glory breaks into the creation and John sits there maybe on a big rock and, and writes the letter, right? Like that's the, the imagery we're given is that John is on the island, Jesus is there with him, allowed himself to be seen, and his glory invades the place where John is. Today, something radically different is going to happen. Today, John is going to hear Jesus' voice and be called up into heaven, and he is going to, whether literally or figuratively, spiritually, we don't know exactly, no, he is going to step into heaven out of what is physical in the world that we can see all around us into, uh, through a door and into the heavenly throne room. And I want to warn us as we get there, because this is where it starts really getting uh, this is where a lot, a lot of the interpretations begin to diverge and, and they start wrestling with things. And part of that is, is, is driven by two things I want to caution us against before we read and begin to study. First, I want us to remember that our finite and limited ability to communicate God's glory, his holiness and his worth, his, his magnificence is limited, <laughs> John is going to draw on images that, that find, their, find their foundation 
in prophetic words uh, from the Old Testament, prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, Isaiah. And he's going to draw on some of that to then turn and communicate what he sees. And there's a mixing of metaphors and there's, there's a challenge to see and discern some of these things because I think we are limited in our ability to communicate clearly on this earth what it is that he is seeing. John is going to serve as our eyes and ears there. He is going to come back and tell, write and tell what he saw and what he heard. But he is limited by, by finite language and among finite people for us to really understand it. And that's why some of this is difficult to get. Second, though I am going to strive to give some definition to the things that we're going to see and, and discern, I want us to be careful that there is, there's so many different views of this that sometimes we can get lost in trying to define exactly right, get, get a definition for every little thing, have some knowledge of every little component that we feel like, oh, that's the right view, that we miss the point for which John is writing. John wants us to see and, and, and get some sense of the glory and the magnificence of the place that he's writing to us about. But his purpose isn't to define every symbol or to explain everything. His point is to tell about it, to drive us to the place where, so we can see the glory of God. And I think what's going to come clear today as we read today in this initial part of this vision I think what's going to come clear today is that he wants us to see that God alone is holy, holy, and God alone is holy, worthy. God alone is completely holy, and God alone is completely worthy. I believe by the time we're done, you will see that uh, unmistakably, even though you might walk out of this room and say, man, I just don't really like what he had to say about those living creatures, or I don't really agree with him about the elders. I, I think there's a different way to view that. That's okay. I, I've told you guys many, many times, I don't mind if you're wrong. I, it's okay. I'm just kidding. It, it, the reality is, is as soon as you take a position in, on some of these things, you are separating yourself. You're you are making yourself distinct and different than some godly leader who has written on, studied deeply, and considered the things of Revelation. And so you can disagree with me on some of this stuff. I think at the end, we will all agree. God is the only one that is holy, holy, and God alone is the, is the only one who is holy, Worthy. So we're going to read Revelation 4, all of it, chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We'll dig in and see what the Lord has for us today. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by you, by by your will, they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because by your will, all things exist. I, 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 feel, I feel at a loss today to be able to speak about this heavenly vision, this, this throne room in which this pure and right worship takes place, de- just decrying and, and, and uh, demonstrating your glory responding to the reality of, of, of just your magnificent presence. So I, I pray today, Father, more than anything, that you, by the power of your Spirit, you would reveal your glory among us and to us. And as we look at these words, that we would be impressed, not with an ability to define elders and living creatures, but to be impressed by you, the one that they were impressed by. So, so would you move on us today? Would you fill us with your spirit and show us your glory? Show us your holiness, your, your worthiness, that, that we might know you and live rightly before you. I pray that you just work through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So everyone, everyone, regardless of whether you're a believer, follower of Jesus or not, Everyone worships something. The question isn't if a person will worship. That's not the question. A lot of times because we think of worship so closely tied to what happens inside of a religious building as an event that we go to and participate in, we tend to think, well, Christians worship and other people don't. No, everyone worships. Everyone worships someone or something. Everyone prioritizes someone or something. Everyone devotes themselves to someone or something. Everyone exalts someone or something over everything else in their life. There is someone or something that takes the highest value, the highest place, the highest position in every person's life. It is woven into us from the very beginning. We were created to be worshipers. It's at the core of our identity. And so, so every, everyone who has ever lived, who ever will live, will worship. Because that's what we were created for. We were created to be reflections of and representatives of the glory of God on the earth to the glory of God on the earth. For him and by him, to make known his glory. That was what we were created for. The the catechisms answer the question, what's the purpose of man? To know God and enjoy him forever. It's just another way of saying to respond to the glory of God in all of life, to 
worship him and enjoy him rightly. And for some of you, this isn't a new topic, a, a new idea. It's not a new, a new thought. The idea that the object of our worship becomes the driving force of our lives. And, and we discern the object of our worship by discerning the driving force of our lives. Some of us, that's not a new idea. It's not a new idea that, that, the, that the object of worship is the thing that gets our greatest attention. It's the thing that our minds go to, that when we're sitting and in, unencumbered in uh, with our attention being taken by some task or some thing, that when our minds wander, they all, it always wanders back to, to this thing or this one. It's the, it's the thing that we talk about because our hearts are taken with it. It's the, it's the one in who, who becomes the foundation of all of our conversation. At the bottom of all of our words and our works are this thing or this one. For some of us, we get this. We understand this is not a new concept. For some of you, it may be. But I think, I think what we can all look at together today, and maybe we haven't considered before, is the role of holiness and worthiness in the act of worship. As, as we're worshiping something, as we're worshiping someone, as we're devoting ourselves, prioritizing, exalting, thinking on, committing to, a sign, we, we, we do something without even realizing it, I think. We assign to these things or to these ones, to these people or to these things that we have, we assign to them a holiness and a worthiness that is not intrinsic to their nature. Think about this with me for just a moment. When you, when you have a person, when, the, when, when your object of worship, when you, your devotion is centered on a person or, or a thing, what you have done is you've singled it out among all other things and said, this is the best one. And in doing so, what you've said is it's holy. It's distinct. It's set apart. It's consecrated. And it's worth more. It's more valuable. It's a higher priority. It's got more weight. It's got more substance. It's, it's, it's more significant than any of the others. What we've done in worshiping anything is assigned to it a holiness and a worthiness that may not be intrinsic to its nature, intrinsic to its being. It shouldn't surprise us then that we, that we feel so let down by these things we worship that don't satisfy us or unite us because they're neither holy nor worship on their own without us ascribing it to them. John here shows us. John here shows us that there is one that we can worship that is both holy and worthy. In fact, that is the only one who has ever existed or ever will exist that is holy, holy, and holy worthy. This is God, the one who is at the center of the throne. God alone is holy, holy, and holy worthy. So worship of our creator God is the only worship that unites and satisfies worshipers. God alone is holy, holy, and holy Worthy. So worship of our creator God is the only worship that unites us and satisfies worshipers. Every other one, every other object of worship will fail us in some way. Let me just see, show you as we walk through this passage again how we see this unfold. So here's John. 
He's just finished, maybe, we don't know the span of time between the, the end of the letter to, the Laodicea, to, to Laodicea and, and the beginning of this vision, but John here on Patmos, waiting, uh, exiled, uh, under, under um, exiled due to the fact that he was a follower of, preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and as a result, the Roman government didn't like it, the Jewish leaders didn't like it, they tried to kill him, it didn't take, so they send him away and, and uh, want him to live out the rest of his years in silence and solitude so that he can't be a bother to them anymore. And Jesus shows up, reveals himself on the beach, after the letters are finished, he hears a voice. At first he looks. After this I looked. So much of this letter is about what John sees and then what John hears and what John hears and then what John sees. It's over and over. We see it happen in this letter. After this I looked. Behold, there's a door. I, just, I, I don't know that this is exactly how it happened, but I'm imagining he's sitting out watching the sun rise one morning after the letters are finished and he looks down the beach and hey, there's a door there. I wasn't there before. I don't know that that's exactly how it is, but as soon as he sees the door... He hears a voice, the, the, the voice of the one who had talk, talked to him before, the one that sounded like a trumpet. You remember that sound? Uh, right? Like, no, that's not really what it sounded like. But it was clear. It was crisp. It stood out. It was distinct. This metaphorical language. That's what happens in an apocalyptic letter. He uses metaphor and analogy to, to draw images with words. This voice that's crisp and clear, distinguishable, discernible. He understands and he, he hears it and he recognizes it. The one who first spoke with me, the one who first called me, is Jesus, if you go back and look. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John, come up here. I'm going to reveal something to you. Something you couldn't discern on your own. Something that you couldn't see with your own eyes if I didn't reveal it to you. Something that is not just a mystery that you can follow the clues to. I'm going to show you what must take place after this. And here's what's happened. As, as we get to this point, this is where things start to break down as people start to interpret because they approach this verse and others like it, trying to figure out exactly what time frame he's talking about. So they hear this and they say, oh, well, well, that's, that's all future. That's all the things that are going to happen, right, in, in the future. But, but if we're not careful, what we're going to assume is what he steps in and sees in this throne room is we're going to automatically begin to assume that that throne room is some future event, some future thing that exists, something that will take place. But I want us to be careful with that because I don't think that's exactly what Jesus means as he's saying it. What I do think he means is that you are going to come and see something that is still yet future. But everything you see is not yet future. I'm going to reveal to that to you. So as we get into chapter 4, that's just the very beginning of this whole vision that's going to work itself out all the way through like chapter 8. So are there things that are going to be yet future in this vision that he's going to... Yeah, absolutely. But if we step into this and we think, oh, well, this throne room doesn't yet exist, I think we're going to miss the point on what's happening here. So I think he's about to step into a throne room that has existed forever, that is, well, at least since the beginning of creation, since the first of God's creative work. And it's going to exist forever, and it exists right now. And that if, if God were so good to us and so kind to us in this moment that he were to pull back the, the veil of eternity, let's just say he peels back that wall and allows us to see into heaven, I think we'd see a heavenly throne room much like what's described here that exists today in this moment and will exist until the day he returns. And oh, maybe 
will exist even after he returns and brings his people to be with him. But then it won't just be heavenly beings that, that populate the throne room. It'll be people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. See, John steps into a heavenly worship service that never ends. That's going on right now. That as we sang this morning, and as part of, man, I was pumped up there and singing. Great job, by the way. Loved it. But as good as you guys were up here on the stage with the, with the vocals and the instruments, you know what I'm so excited about is I'm, getting a, I'm about to get up and stand and talk about this worship service that's even bigger and grander and more beautiful. It's taking place at the same time that we're standing here gathering in worship. Worship of a God who is holy, holy, and a God who is holy, worthy. See, the, the thing is, is that this letter is going to show us present realities and future realities. If we're not careful, you're sitting here 2,000 years later, we're going to think, oh, it's all present right now. Well, no, the letters written to seven churches are history. Those were real churches with real issues. They were struggling. So there's a historical view that we can look back into history and say, that's a real thing. There's some of it that's future, that, that, that there is a still work to be done, that Christ is still working to consummate all of his promises. There's still a yet to be finished. But there's a present reality, and one of those present realities is that this throne room that we're looking at and getting a glimpse of because John serving as our eyes and our ears in this heavenly throne room exists right now in this moment. John is called up into this place to see it. And what he does across this chapter, is, it's 11 verses, but the first seven are written so that we kind of get a feel for where we're at. But they really only exist so that we can see and understand the last four. The first seven are descriptive language. They're describing what he sees so that we can better understand what happens in the last four. So that's where we're going to really focus and draw on those images from before so that we can see his point. First and foremost, I would just point you to verses 8 through 10 where we see that God alone is holy Holy, completely holy. He is the one who is holy inside and out, all the way through from start to finish. Everything about him is holy. We see this in verses 8 through 10 as we look at this chapter and we see these, these living creatures who are full of eyes all around and within them. Like there's not a component of their, of their physical being that's not got an eye on it. Now just picturing that is like that. You can't draw that in a picture. Even discerning it, there's like seven different perspectives on, on that that I read over the last few weeks. That is just crazy. We don't even fully understand what the eyes are for. Seeing and knowing and, and, and expressing wisdom and knowledge, maybe. But here are these four living creatures. But what's most important about these living creatures, not just what they look like, not so much what they look like, but the song that they sing. Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. I don't know who it was first that said this. I, I can't remember who I first uh, heard this from. But this is the only attribute of God. Holiness is the only attribute of God that is thrice repeated. It's repeated three times like this. Like we know the scripture tells us that God is good, right? We know that the scripture tells us God is love, right? But it never says God is good, 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 or God is love, love, love. 
The only, only attribute of God, the only characteristic of God that's ever stated and emphasized in this threefold manner is holiness. Holy, holy, holy. And what, does it, what does it mean? It means he's completely holy, that every aspect of his existence is holy, that his goodness is informed by his holiness, and his love is informed by his holiness, and everything about him is absolutely holy. Well, what does it mean that he's holy through and through, inside and out, from first to last? It means that he himself is separate, distinct, set apart with implications of there's inside that word, there's implications of moral purity. He is not waiting for us to assign that to him. It's simply who he is. Every other object of our worship requires us to determine its holiness. God simply is holy, and that's what makes him worthy of worship because of his holiness. R.C. Sproul, who's written a book on the holiness of God and who has a lot of good things to say on this. He writes, or actually this is from his video series, uh, The Holiness of God, that's based on that book. He, he says in the midst of that, in the midst of that series, he, he says, in the scriptures, there is one primary meaning and one secondary meaning of the term holy. The secondary meaning is that which refers to a personal righteousness and purity. The secondary meaning. However, the primary meaning of the word is separate or if you will, theological apartheid, an absolute distinction, an absolute separation. There is nothing in common with that which it is distinct from. That which is holy is that which is other, that which is different from something else. And we have this. Here, here we have the living creature standing in his presence, facing the, the throne and the one on the throne. And they are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And in agreement, the elders are falling on their face and throwing down their crowns and answering, worthy are you? Because everyone agrees. He is holy, holy, holy. He is this. This is the truth. But beyond the, the proclamations of praise, beyond the, 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 the exclamations and the words that are uttered, we can see his holiness from the moment that John steps into the throne room. For example, the very first thing called out is the one on the throne. As soon as he gets in, as soon as, and I, I don't know, it's difficult to discern in the language where he says, I'm immediately in the spirit. It doesn't mean, we don't know whether that means immediately he's stepping through the door. It doesn't, we don't know if immediately he's able to peer through the door or if he is transported physically or if he is transported spiritually beyond the door, through the door to this heavenly throne room. We don't exactly know, but, but he's there. And the very first thing he calls our attention to is the one in the very center, the one who's on the throne. And then everything else he mentions, everything else he brings up is in orientation to and connected to in some way the throne, either around the throne or before the throne or, or bowing toward the throne. Everything is centered on the one on the throne. Even then in the description. As he describes the one on the throne, what do we get? This vague imagery of jewels, jasper and carnelian and, 
and, and, and a rainbow surrounding him of, uh, uh, that looks like an emerald. And, and so there's this impression of light and this glowing. There's no real physical description, though. He, he resists trying to give any sense of body or shape. I mean, how do we describe someone that looks like a jewel? You don't. So quit trying to picture it. We weren't meant to be able to see him in this way. But he's distinct and holy among everything else that's there that gets some form of physical description. Clothed in white with golden crowns, the elders. So they've got their own thrones, but they still get a description of some physical form. The living creatures that look like a, a lion, an ox, and, a, and an eagle in flight still get a physical description. There's the image of the, the lampstands that, that I believe represent the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits that we saw referenced in Revelation chapter 1. Again, this light that is glowing before the throne that is actually shining on these ones that are before the throne. Everything about this image, everything about this vision is to show us the holiness of the God who sits on this throne. It's not just the imagery. It's not just the throne room that, that would cause us to see this. It's not just the threefold holy, holy, holy. Look at what they say about him as they call him holy. The Lord God Almighty. He is holy in power. Almighty. You ever been able to say that about anybody you know? Is there ever a ruler in history that could have made claims of almightiness? I'm going to wager a bet. They're dead now. They didn't have all the power they needed, did they? There's no kingdom that's ever stood for eternity, is there? There will only be one that's eternal, that will never be thwarted, that will never be overthrown, that will never be uh, undermined. There is one who is almighty, and he is God, distinct from every other ruler, every other authority, every other power. He is holy in power, the Lord God Almighty. He is holy in authority. Oh, sure, there's been plenty of people that have taken on the title Lord, that have been, been Lord so-and-so. Uh, you, you probably know some people that have been called Lord. Maybe you've even wanted to be called Lord. But that's a derivative authority. That's an authority that's always under the authority of the most powerful person in the room. You know Why? Because the most powerful person in the room is the one that actually lets you exert any authority. Because if he doesn't like what you're doing, he can stop you using your authority. He is holy in authority. He is Lord of lords, King of kings. There is no authority over his. Every other authority is somehow subject to his authority. He is holy in divinity. God, the the. the word is theos like there's the the divine nature lord god almighty oh yeah you could call somebody lord but how many people are you going to call lord god almighty you, you know there's there's even evidence of this back in roman history the roman emperor cult would would demand and call people to call them lord and worship them as lord then there were some Caesars, and actually Domitian, it's said of Domitian, who was the emperor at the time that John is writing, if you take the date that I take, the, the later date that I would hold to, 
Domitian is the emperor at the time, and he wanted not to be only called Lord. He wanted to be called Lord and God. Now, the Senate in Rome, it said, this is history, and I, 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 there's a few references I found to this, but there's, there's this historical perspective that the Senate in Rome wouldn't allow the emperor on the throne to be called Lord and God. They would demand that that only take place after the emperor was dead, which is interesting to me because once they're dead, you'd think that they quit being anything. <laughs> uh, we can call them Lord and God now because they can't get a big head over it, right? It doesn't make sense. But Domitian is said to have wanted to be called Lord and God, demanding it in his lifetime to be treated as if he's Lord and God. But, but we all know what happened to Rome, right? It fell. The power's gone. It wasn't almighty. There is only one who this holy, holy, holy can be applied to. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy in eternity Look at this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is holy in his eternality. He was from the very beginning. He is the uncaused cause. The throne room exists because he created it. The beings in that throne room exist because they exist according to his will. The churches exist because he created the world for them to exist in. The, the, the man, Domitian, who would demand to be called Lord and God, only exists because God gave him life. He's the uncaused cause, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who always will be. When this earth crumbles, his kingdom will stand. He is holy in his eternality. There is none like him in this way. We all have a starting point. We all have a place that we begin. Not him. Not all of us exist at a present time. There's going to come a time, at least in this world, in terms of physical existence, in which I will not exist here. My spirit will be with the Lord. But I will not be a human on the earth as I was intended and created to be, and neither will you. Unless the Lord comes back and takes us all to be with him, and then that, this is all. That's okay then, right? <laughs> be all right. But he has always been God. There's never a moment that he will cease to exist in his fullness at all times, in all places, for all eternity. There is no one else that can say that or that it can be said about. He is holy in power. He is holy in authority. He is holy in his divinity. He is holy in his eternality. And that means he is holy in his worshipability. And I don't know that that's really a word, but I think it fits. He is holy in his worshipable worship ability. Not his ability to worship, but his ability to receive worship. This is what sets him apart from every other object of worship that we commit ourselves to. This is why when he gives the command that you shall have no other gods before me, it's not a command that's supposed to restrict us. It's a command to free us. Because nothing else is holy enough to receive worship. And because nothing else is as holy as he, nothing else is worthy of worship. We can appreciate and love one another. Right? I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be special people in our lives. I hope you husbands love your wives distinctly different than you love other women in the church. Wives, I hope you love your husbands distinctly different than you love the other men in the church. 
I hope that you appreciate your brothers and sisters in Christ doing good to everyone, but especially, Paul says, especially prioritizing the household of faith. Certainly there's ways that we can prioritize without giving the highest seat. Certainly there's ways that we can walk into creation and appreciate what's there. You know, I'm a mountain guy, man. I walk into the mountains, uh, some of the places I've gotten to go in my life and see the, the majesty of mountains. The highest one I've ever been on, I was, about, I was just under 20,000 feet. And there's a lake up there with snow. In the middle of summer, it's snow coming down, right? And the lake is half frozen over, and it's absolutely beautiful and awe-inspiring. And I'm standing up there, this little bitty speck on this high mountain. I'm astonished. It's absolutely beautiful. You drive out into the Rockies. You see the peaks, you know, those 14ers that keep the snow most of the year. Drive through the Vail Pass. Amy and I got to do that a few years back. We drive through the Vail Pass, and it starts, and it's summertime, and in the middle it turns kind of spring or fallish, and on the top it's snowing on us. And this little bitty speck. It's so easy to just be inspired and, and struck with awe as I look around at those things in those moments. But I can do that without worshiping them. I can appreciate them in such a way that it inspires me to worship the one who created them. The one who the Bible tells us these mountains will melt like wax before the Lord. I think he's a little bit more worthy than those mountains. I think he's a little bit more powerful than those mountains. I think he's a little bit more awe-inspiring than those mountains. If, if I'm a little speck on them, but they melt before him like wax. You ever melted wax? It's not hard to do. Put a little heat to it. It runs like water. He is holy in his worshipability, which goes to that God alone is holy, worthy. What does that mean, that he's holy, worthy? It means that he's worthy, deserving of what he is receiving. He is weighty or significant. The idea in the original language is not just the, the, worthy, the, the deserving of something, but there's a substantialness to it. So it's like when you pick up a, a cheap old ballpoint pen and it's like light and flimsy and you can tell it's not going to write nice, but then you pick up that weighty pen that, that feels just right in your hand, that you spent a little money on because you wanted something nice, right? There's things that you that you pick them up and there's weight to them that demonstrates that there's value to them. That's the idea that this word conveys, that he is worthy. He's deserving of the honor he receives. He's deserving of the praises being uttered. He is weighty. He is significant. He is completely deserving to be exalted and venerated, adored and thanked. He deserves it because he is holy because he is holy, he is this worthy. And what do they call him out as? When we get to that place at verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God. Again, drawing on this language from, from, from the, the living creatures uttered now by the elders, agreeing, right? Uniting around that phrase. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed. Again, referring to his eternality, returning to, to the idea that he's the source of all things. By your will they existed. He is worthy as our creator. Think about it. His power expressed in creating something from nothing. 
Nothing exists. And he says, let there be light and light shines. He speaks and things are. You know anybody with power like that? Only one. Of course, it makes him worthy of our recognition. Our lives are due to him. Our lives are owed to him. He is over us in every way as our creator. But again, the vision shows us, shows us again that this is his worthiness expressed as being the center and source of all creation. The elders, these are heavenly angelic beings. Now, there is a view in in. In the Christian world, there is a view that these are humans who are dressed in white with their golden crowns. And, and, and the, some people would take that. For, if you read the letters, there's promises of getting the crowns and the white robes. And, and they say immediately, oh, they're humans. But then we're going to turn to chapter 5. And these elders are going to turn around and speak of humans, speak of the church in the third person and not include themselves in it. Right? And, 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 and there's, there's other reasons, but I would suggest that these are angelic beings. These are not humans. They are not members of the church. They're, they're representatives of the church. Um, G.K. Bill would say it this way. The elders here are to be identified as angelic beings representing the church as a whole, including the saints of the Old Testament. That's probably why there's 24 of them. But the reality is, is that they are representatives, kind of like every church had an angel. Right? And now there's these 24 elders that are likely angelic beings, and there's reasons to see it that way. We can talk about it more later. But they become our representatives before God and his throne. And what are they doing? If you, if you look back and when they're introduced, they're, what are they doing? They're, they're, they've got these prayers that they're being a liaison between God and his people, bringing the prayers of his people as an incense. These... <clears throat> The idea, clothed in white garments, and it doesn't make sense to make them humans that we would then pray to and offer. No, we pray to God, and these angels as messengers between us and God are, are representatives, just like the angels of the churches. The sea of glass. And so, so let me just call this out. So you got, the, you got these angelic heavenly beings, right, created by God. And then you got this sea of glass, that's representative, I think, of the, the sea. So, so we're going to get a picture of land, sky, water. All of it's about to happen here. Now, in Revelation, and actually across Hebrew scriptures, the sea and the waters actually represent chaos and turmoil, and, and that's where the source of evil is, and evil comes from the sea. We're going to see that play itself out. But this is a sea that is still, still, not steel, still. There is no chaos. It's calm. And then you got these living creatures, and they're representative of, I believe, again, they're angelic beings, but they're representative of what? A lion, the wild beast. Uh, an ox, the beast of the field, the, the, the um, domesticated animals, and the birds of the air, the eagle in flight. You have this imagery of heavenly beings and earthly beings and this sea that we don't see the fish but why would we? They're in the sea. But every other, every other place that God creates, if you go back and look at Genesis, you're going to see it. He created the land animals, both beasts of the field and wild beasts, right? He created the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. And we have this imagery of his creation of heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created everything. Everything in heaven and on earth, Right? 
We have this image, we have this picture of this God who is the source of all these things, who everything is centered around and finds its source from. Because he is their creator and they never take their eyes off of him. He is their their covenant maker. He is worthy as their covenant maker and covenant keeper. Again, the language of of the vision alludes to this. When he, sees, when he sees God, he sees the one who, on, on the throne, and he describes him as Jasper and Carnelian. These are both stones on the ephod of the high priests in Israel. He talks about the, the rainbow of light that surrounds the throne, which calls our attention back to the rainbow that God placed in the clouds when he made a covenant with Noah. And we see the lightning and thunder emanating from his throne. In fact, that lightning and thunder we're going to see as the seals are broken, as the bowls are poured, and as the trumpets blasts. That call our attention to the base of Mount Sinai when the people of Israel stood before God and his lightning and his thunder were flashing and rumbling. And they were scared to death and they said, Moses, speak for us because we don't want to die. We can't help but begin to see all these, all these allusions back to the covenants that he has made and the covenants that he intends to keep. He is worthy as our creator, as our covenant maker and covenant keeper. He is worthy as great and glorious. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. It doesn't mean that they, what they're saying is you are worthy not to receive it, not to take it from us, but for us to acknowledge the reality of your glory and your, your, your greatness, your power, your sovereignty, your, your rule over all things. Your, you are the most glorious of all things on all people. You are holy in this way, right? Like they are agreeing with the distinctiveness of God. You are worthy for us to praise and proclaim as glorious and honorable and powerful. Why? Because you are the creator. Because you are the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. You are great and glorious. You are worthy alone to be worshipped in this way. See, God alone is holy, holy, and holy, worthy. And so worship of our creator God is the only thing that unites us as his worshipers and satisfies us as his worshipers. How does it unite us? Worship of the holy and worthy God unites his worshipers to him. You cannot walk in step with God if you worship something else. If something else is the preeminent primary thing in your life, if some person has taken the spot of worship in your life, you cannot walk with him. You cannot be in the light and the dark at the same time. That's why at the heart of all that he is and all that he does, it is not vain or narcissistic for God to say, I alone am worthy of worship. Because he is the only one holy and only one worthy, it would be wrong. It would be evil of him to say it's okay to worship other things. He must defend himself in this reality because the only one that there's any good for us in worshiping is him. Our worship of him actually unites us to him. It orients us in right manner with him. Worship of the holy and worthy God unites his worshipers as his creatures. This imagery of the heavens and earth being united, John seeing earthly creatures and heavenly beings represented before the throne of God, this is what he's moving to. 
This is where it's all going to end. The one day we're all going to be there. Not all, because all of his people, let me say it like that. Around his throne, we are united as his creatures in heaven and on earth. It's going on right now. When we sing our songs of worship, we are uniting. We are standing together with those in heaven who know without any shadow of a doubt who can see the light shining from the throne. They know. And we join with them. This isn't something that's waiting for the future to occur. It's something we get to join in today as the light dawns over the horizon, as the sun has come to us and let us know he is coming. Worship of the holy and worthy God unites his worshipers to him, his creatures, and in heaven and on earth. And worship of the holy and worthy God satisfies his worshipers. Here's the thing. If we get bored with the idea of being among God's people, praising the God of creation, let me just press just a little bit. Let me meddle just a little bit. If you're already thinking, man, I've been here just a little bit too long. Got a little bit, I got some things I got to take care of. How, how long is he going to go for? I'm actually drawing it out now just to press this point. I'm not saying that there's not other things we have to do in this life. There, 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 of course there is. Are we consider, do we want to think about one another's times and consider one another's issues? Absolutely we do. But if we get bored with the idea of worshiping God, we're not going to appreciate the new heaven and new earth very much. Did you see when this was taking place? Like John didn't show up into this heavenly throne room and all of a sudden he saw it and it was over. He's there at least to see it taking place day and night without ceasing. And every time it happened, every time the the living creatures call out, holy, 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 the elders are falling down. And just imagine trying to get something done when that's going on. Imagine imagine falling down on your face every time it called. That doesn't sound very good. That's not very entertaining. That's not. Man, I, 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 I don't believe. That I, I believe there will be work. I believe there will be ways in which we pursue all kinds of things in the new heavens and on the new earth. But I believe the holiness of God and the worthiness of God will be so present that for eternity we would be celebrating the fact that we'd hear those living creatures call out and we would want to fall down no matter what we were doing. Because he is just that holy and he is just that worthy. And any, any idea that that is going to get old or that is going to become tiresome is a misunderstanding of just how holy and worthy our God is. So, we worship in all we do, in all of life, and lead others to worship him because this is what we were created for and this is what we will spend eternity doing. As Paul addresses this issue in the book to the, of, the, of 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why would he care? Because this is what we're going to be doing forever. So whether you eat or drink or whether you abstain from eating and drinking, do it not in a pursuit of your right standing, but as an act of worship. 
Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, again, Paul addressing this issue of worship, whatever you do in word or or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father, to, to God the Father through him. Again, whatever you do in word or deed, worship him in it. Serve one another, not so that you can get something back from the person you serve, but as an act of worship to the God who is holy and worthy. Live as citizens of heaven here on earth, as good citizens. Not so that we can maintain power or get our way or live comfortably, but as an act of worship. And if God so blesses us with comfort because things go our way, praise God. And if they don't, to the glory of God, we still live as good citizens, as an act of worship. Well, then we'll be persecuted. We'll be in good company. There were seven churches that were called out and, and, and should, were told to expect to have to hold fast, have to endure, have to, have to pursue. What, what was that that he was calling them to? Lives of worship. Parent your children. Not so that you look good in front of your peer parents, but as an act of worship. I... I mean, just I want to I want to draw this out because it's it's pertinent to us. We got lots of kids, lots of families. When our children become the object of our worship, we assign to them a holiness and a worthiness that they can't sustain because they are not weighty enough. They're not substantial enough. There's a way to adore them and honor them and love them without worshiping them. But if you draw your identity and your sense of being and existence off of your children, you will crush them under that weight. They cannot sustain it. It is a sin against them. Spouses, we do the same thing when we seek our happiness from our spouse or seek to get married so we can be happy. Be a spouse as an act of worship to God not as an act of worshiping that person. There is a way to rightly love or submit, Ephesians 5, as unto God, as a representative of God, without worshiping that person. If you make them the source of your being and the purpose of your living, you will crush them and they will fail you and then it will crush you both. Children, obey your parents, not to earn your place before God in heaven or not to earn their love as an act of worship to the God who gave you your parents. Tell others of our holy, holy, and holy, worthy God, not because you want a pat on the back, but because he's actually holy, holy, and holy, worthy. Everything in this life that we've left to do that's worth doing, should be, can be done as an act of worship. And there are all kinds of of ways that that finds its way out. There's all kinds of ways that it brings better, uh, good benefit and, and comes at a cost. But we get to join in heaven, with heaven on earth as we join them in lives committed to worship. If you are God's children... That is our call. If you have never trusted in him, 
If you've never, what, 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 what this chapter does for you, if you have never trusted in the Lord, is you're going to see this holy God that's absolutely distinct, that sits across the sea that you can't reach him. Between you and him are all these heavenly beings that you can't get past. How in the world am I going to get there? We're actually going to look at that next week as we look at chapter 5. But let me just break some of that suspense today. The Lamb of God, who is his Son, who came and suffered and died on the cross in your place for your sin, who calls us to trust in him and by him and through him gives us access to the throne room of God. So if you've never believed in him, you're going to hear all this call to worship, and you're going to do your best to worship, but you've never trusted Jesus, and you're going to be unable to ever turn and worship him. Let me call you first to the cross, to the Lamb of God who came and was slain so that we could live. Turn to him, trust in him, believe in him, and then join us together and worship our holy God, our worthy God. Let's pray.